Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Tears of Rangi from our 2018 programme. In her most ambitious book to date, Ockham New Zealand Book Awards shortlisted Tears of Rangi Experiments Across Worlds, Anne Salmon reframes our understanding of New Zealand. Beginning with the earliest encounters between Māori and European New Zealanders, Salmon suggests that the legacy of those clashes and exchanges provides us with an opportunity to rethink our relationship to the waterways, the land and each other. Salmon puts forth her thesis with Chris Wikaira. We hope you enjoy it. I'm Chris Wikaida and I come from all of those places. Um, I welcome you all here today. I just acknowledge that we are in the domain of um, Ngāti Whātou Rākei, which I think is quite good given our guests' uh, connections to uh, the home people. Um, it is my honour to be sharing this space with Dame Anne Salmond and to have the opportunity to discuss, to have a discussion about this book, Tears of Rangi, Experiments Across Worlds. Dame Anne has spent much of her life immersed in Te Ao Māori. It has been a significant influence on a distinguished academic career. She has been guided, supported, and inspired by a great many people, notably to me, um, Eduera and Armedia Sterling, and of course, Meri Meri Penfold. Uh, much of her work has been on early engagement and interaction of Maori and European, and then our Pacifica cousins from Tahiti and their engagement with Europeans. Her work has been widely acclaimed and recognized, and I mentioned just a couple of things. Uh, Amedia, the life of a Maori woman, Eruera teachings of a Māori uh, elder. Two worlds, the first meetings between Māori and Europeans, 1642 to 1772, and I bet a lot of people didn't know there were even contact back then. Between worlds, early exchanges between Māori and Europeans from 1773 to 1815, all won awards. She herself has been recognised many times, including being a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, that seems a little bit anachronistic to what we're going to be talking about today, I'm, yep. I'm afraid. That was in 1995. Um, she was made New Zealander of the Year in 2013, um, the year she also received a Rutherford Medal uh, from the Royal Society of um, New Zealand. Amen. Tēnā koe. Kia ora So I'll just take something straight out of the blurb of the book. Let's get going. Uh, from the earliest encounters on these shores, you propose that the legacy of clashes that happened between two peoples provides us with an opportunity to rethink our relationship to things like waterways, the land, as well as each other. That, to many, is going to seem like a very weighty proposition. Um, how, do, how does one do that? Mm. Well, I guess, um, in a way, it's what I tried to do, um, I started to do a long time ago, because, as you say, I started off um, getting to meet some extraordinary kui and kaumātua, and I'm thinking about people like Peggy Kou and Lorna, Lady Lorna Ngata, when I was very young, about 16, and then afterwards, Edwira and Armelia, and I was close to them 
very close to them for about 20 years until they both died. And Mary Mary Penfold, who was my very close, you know, best friend for years and years until she died too. And each of those people, uh, for example, Eduida, when I was thinking about doing a PhD, I talked to him about it. And he said at that point, because we'd been together by that time, I met him in my first year at university, uh, he and our media, and so he said, well, Ani, if you really want to understand Te Ao Māori, uh, the marae is the university for you now. And so that's how, and he said, if, if, if you want to do that, then we'll take you. And so I spent a couple of years on the road. I had a little blue V-dub, and I was their driver for a couple of years. And we just were all over the country, but went to about 70 hui together. And, you know, different parts, places that otherwise I, I don't think I ever would have visited, going to Marokopa on a little rowboat with a, you know, kind of a seagull engine on the back and conking out halfway across the river and floating off out to sea, almost out to sea. And that was exciting, uh, with my flash tape recorder and so on. So I got, in that time, and then subsequently working with both our media and then Eduera on their life stories, and especially with Eduera in a way, because he was a real tohunga, and he was trained in the old, by uh, Kui and Komata from Kirieke, the last of the whare wānanga in Whānau Apanui. And when we did that book together, it was very, you know, he'd, he'd watched what happened with the previous works, and uh, especially our media, and I think that he, um, he decided that won a, lit a literary award, and you know, it went really well, and Nanny was thrilled with it. So he decided that it was time to share some of his insights and his thoughts, I think, with the younger generation through a book. And while we were doing that, it was very tapu, it was like, you know, go off away from kai, karakia before every taping. Um, he spoke mostly in Māori. Um, it was about, you know, tribal histories, his own thoughts about what was going on in this country and about the future. And so I got very, very immersed um, to a point actually at one point where I got quite, you know, it was almost too much. I had three little kids, had three kids under five when I wrote that book. Um, and, uh, you know, the tapu part of it was, you know, you know what that's like. It can be, as you say, quite heavy, paumaha. So anyway, then I started thinking, well, how did all this begin? So to go to your question, you know, that was back with two worlds. Um, and I went back to the very first meetings of, of Māori and, and people from Europe, mainly from Europe, and tried to understand uh, exactly those first encounters. But over the years, I've got kind of more and more interested in the ideas that were in the if you like, in the hull of the whole, um, in the depths, the wooden world of the endeavor, as well as the philosophies that people like Edwira and others are guardians of, and trying to understand what happened when those two started to clash and collide and exchange. Because Cook and Banks and Solander and co were very much on a voyage of discovery, um, you know, they discovered New Zealand, and all my uncles always say, discovered what? We were already bloody here. Yes. Um, <laughs> Precisely. Uh, but it was very much a voyage of discovery on both sides, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I've been very involved with recently is I got to know some of the voyaging, when I was in Tahiti in particular, some of the voyaging fraternity that are now out there on the ocean and traveling by the stars again. And so that's 
locally Jack Thatcher and Hotu Kerr, um, Heck Busby, obviously, mm. um, and those, those people. And the, the thing that you learn about that is that, um, that the ancestors of Māori actually invented blue water sailing. And the, the Pacific Ocean was like the hardest proposition on the planet. It's a third of the Earth's surface, it's huge. And so to be able to explore that and to develop the craft and the, um, the sailing waka or waka and the, the skill of navigating by the stars and the currents and the birds and the whales was a huge feat in human history. So, um, and this was the hardest voyage, you know, this is the last place on the planet to be found and settled by people, Aotearoa. So the feat of those navigators um, has to be recognised, you know, and the fact that people talked about Cook discovering New Zealand is a, is a bit of a slap in the face when you consider that history, which is not to diminish Cook, but it's to say, actually, um, these other navigators, uh, you know, they, they were doing this at the same time as the Egyptians were building the pyramids, so... Because we were so small and out of the way, would Cook have got here if he hadn't had a Polynesian navigator, if he hadn't had Tupaya? With them. Well, I had a, one of the lovely things about working in Tahiti for a while, and so I've written, I don't know, three books in connection with Tahiti, and I spent a lot of time at Tapatapuatea, which is the voyaging marae there, and it's still really, really important to the voyaging fraternity. It's now a World Heritage Site, and for a long time, um, it was a big feat to get the French government to put it up, actually, because they didn't, again, that history of voyaging had been suppressed, I guess. Um, but the, the wonderful thing about that was that um, in, in elevating the status of Tapatapuate, the whole history of Tupaia, the high priest navigator who was trained right there and who ended up hopping on board the Endeavour and coming down to Aotearoa, or coming up, you know, depending which way you're thinking, um, that, that that history's come back to light as well. And so there are people now who are, who are spending scholarly you know, eons basically trying to reconstruct his chart, the chart that he did with Cook. That had shows Tahiti as the centre of the universe. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yep. Or maybe Ra'iatea, yeah. yeah. So once Cook and Co got here, in, in the early part of the book, you, you spend a lot of time on the, the, that early engagement and, and setting the scene of what were the things that went right and what were the things that, that went wrong. Um, and where there were obviously language difficulties, although Tupaya could, could make himself understood and be understood by the locals. Um, there were cultural misunderstandings as well. And, and I want to talk a little bit about this idea of um, reciprocity um, and the culture of giving things and receiving things and how that was the foundation of a lot of the, the early misunderstandings and that theme of misunderstandings that just got repeated over and over and perhaps still being repeated a little bit now. Uh, what's the essence of that? Well, I think in those very, very first encounters, um, and that's why the first chapter of the book is actually about that, it's um, the first time that Māori and, um, and people from Europe, plus Tupai, of course, um, and not all the not all the crew of the Endeavour were British, of course. I mean, there were people from Scandinavia on board and played a big role in Germany. So the, the key thing about that, I think, is that 
when the, as the endeavor sailed in, it was like a traveling laboratory of the Enlightenment. You know, it was a scientific expedition. It was sent out by the Royal Society of London. They had a set of instructions from the Earl of Morton, who was the president at that time, an astronomer. And he was in a particular strand of the Enlightenment that actually upheld in international law the rights of indigenous people. So it's interesting, his instructions say to cook, um, to be very mindful that these people are the rightful, the legal possessors of their own lands, he says. So if you like, it was an acknowledgement of Māori sovereignty right at the outset. And that even if they resist a landing and maybe hurt some of your men, you shouldn't shoot. Uh, you've got to try not to harm them because they have a right to resist a landing. You know, it's their, their, their place, if you like. So the Earl of Mortimer had these instructions, but on the other hand, Cook had another set of instructions from the Admiralty, which were much more about claiming territory. So there was this little tiny wee ship, as we all know, very small. And then on board as well was Tupaya, this high priest navigator from Taputapuatea, which is a homeland of Iatea being a homeland of Māori. And really interesting to see in the Herald this morning a story about that, about an island up in the bay of islands or a point called Rangiatea. And, you know, the names that relate right back to the, the homelands. So the exchanges that then happened, um, when they first went ashore in Turanga, which is my own hometown, Gisborne, Turanga, Nuiakiwa, when they first went ashore, Tupaya doesn't seem to have been with them. I don't know why, I don't understand that actually, but when they first landed at the mouth of the Turanganui River and went ashore, what happened was that they crossed the river, this was Banks and Cook and several of the scientists, they crossed the river and immediately they, there was a little fishing settlement there at a place called Te Waiohiharore, which is really important because it was a place where all the inland iwi were allowed to come fishing without being molested, it was a, like a sanctuary. So they were on that land, and they were looking at this little fishing village, and Banks was running around collecting plants because they thought, they thought they'd arrived at Terra Australis Incognita, the great unknown southern continent. So, you know, for them it was like a moonshot. It was this fabled continent that was supposed to exist in the southern hemisphere to counterbalance the land masses of the north, and Banks thought he'd, he'd scored, you know, this huge hit which was to find Terra Australis, and in fact it turned out to be known the theory was in those years that it would have rajas on elephants and pearls and spices and gold and stuff because that was on the same latitude as South America. And, and it turned out to be my hometown of Gisborne. So, so, so uh, but anyway, so while they were doing that, they left some boys in charge of the yawl. And the boys, went, instead of looking after the yawl, they went and played on the beach because they'd been at sea for, you know, quite a while. And, and they were just kids, you know, these would have been probably about 10, 11, 12, 13. Uh, the crew is mostly young. And these um, warriors came down from Titirangi, four of them, same number as the boys. And I'm sure that what they did was a whittle, but it was involved with long spears, and because otherwise they would have sent a lot more than just four. And so they approached with these long spears, and it seems to have been a, a ritual challenge. And then one of them pulled back a spear to throw it. And in the old days, as I understand it from some of the early sources, you know, you didn't put a little stick down on the ground. You actually threw a spear and you had to parry it. No, it wasn't a, a piece of fern leaf like that. <laughs> yeah, no, it was like heavy duty. And so 
the coxswain thought that they were under attack and so they shot him. And this was Te Maro. And at home in Gisborne at the moment, because next year's the 250th anniversary of that arrival, huge debates going on. And Ngāti Onione are telling stories about Te Maro. He was a great, he was a peace, peacemaker. Um, he was in charge of all the gardens on the river. Um, they're saying with his shooting, things changed. So you can sort of see how it happened, but it's had, the, the reverberations are still going on. So then Tapaya comes to, uh, to Drent Lake. Yeah, so, right, so then obviously that whole, the shooting was not supposed to happen, it was against Cook's instructions, and, um, and it was worse when they, they went back out to the ship and Cook decided, he, you know, he was desperate to try and make friends with people because he was short of food and water, didn't want to fight because he had orders not to, but also he wanted food and fresh food and water for the crew. And so he decided to try and take some guys on board. And that also blew up in his face. It didn't work. There were some fishing canoes out, out at sea. And as they came sailing back into the bay, uh, Cook sent a couple of um, rowing boats to try and intercept them. And the crew resisted. And so they chucked everything. They chucked their paddles. They chucked fish. They chucked the anchor stones at these guys. And they ended up, and again, some, guys, some people got shot. So three young boys got taken on board the Endeavour and, and Tupaya um, started to interpret at that point. And they told them about their atua and they told them quite a few things, I think, that, that night. And, and they ended up doing a haka and performing, on, <laughs> sleeping on board the, sh of the ship that night. But when they went ashore the next day, yeah, Tupaya was with them. Get some communication going. Um, Jumping forward to the next visit, going to Uawa, or Tolaga Bay, yes. further up north, and communication gets up to a much better start, um, then there seems to be a little bit more interaction. The two circles intersect just a fraction more. Well, the interesting thing is that after the, all these really, and, and if you read the journals of Banks and Cook, you know, they were obviously, Cook was very aware that he'd broken the Earl of Morton's instructions, first landing, shootings. Um, Banks said, you know, this is the w most disagreeable day my life has yet seen, black be the mark for it. And heaven send that such may not return to embitter future reflection, which... Prescient. Is, yeah, prescient, exactly. As they were sailing out of the bay, they got stalled, um, you know, becalmed off Young Nick's head to Kuriapawa. And there was a peaceful meeting there. It's interesting. Um, a bunch of waka came out, and they just stood and they looked from the sea, and then a single waka came from Turanganui, from the mouth of the river, and it was the guy, a warrior who pressed noses with Cook on Tokatayo. In the middle of all the chaos and misunderstandings and violence, there was this moment where there was a hungi on the rock, which is a, a very tapu rock still, except it got blasted up by the harbour board, but to Tokatayo, very, very famous voyaging rock, but it was in the road of the ships and they blasted it out. Um, but So this guy came chasing and he asked him to come back. And I think he probably wanted to get Tupaya back because he was able to speak and they could understand each other. And here was a high priest from the homeland, you know, with this weird looking craft and these, you know, what are they? Are they humans? Are they Atua? Are they Tupua? What are they? 
And he could say what he liked because he was the only one that could really speak. So I don't know what he said, but you know, later everybody thought this was too pious shit. So there was a peaceful exchange. And so when he came, this guy came out, he went on board, and then there were these beautiful painted hoi that were exchanged. And recently we went hoi back. Petals. Yeah, the beautiful painted paddles with the most spectacular core fi fi patterns on the blade. And there was a whole waka load of those that were handed over. And we think, and they also offered the waka. And we're thinking now, Steve Gibbs and others from uh, Dangiwahal are now saying that they were probably trying to get Tupai to come ashore. And, but all those, those hoya ended up in, in Britain, and now they're scattered all over the world. They're in, so we're trying to get some of those back if we can. So, but as you say, when they went up to Anoda um, and then to Uawa, um, that was really a different level altogether. So Tupai was ashore, slept in a cave up in the, what they now call Cook's Cove, and, um, and had exchanges with the tohunga from um, Te Rāwhiaoro, the local wānanga. And, and then some of the preconceptions of, um, you know, you talk about enlightenment, and the idea was to bring civilization as well as expand the empire mm. um, from the Admiralty's um, view of things. Um, the preconceptions of you know, savages and heathens and things starts to get challenged at a very early point, doesn't it? Because they realise that the people they're talking to with Tupai's help are actually quite clever. Well, the interesting thing is that Tupai, because he spent quite a long time on the ship, and he was a very, very... If you read the Tahitian sources, they all say he was you know, one of the great tohunga of that time in the, in, in the whole of the Society Islands. He was a real... He was a, a, what they call a, if you translate it, a black leg arioi. So he was like a, a leading high priest in that, in the, um, under the god of Oro, who's the god of fertility and war. And they were navigators when they sailed. You know, they, they used to go in big flotillas and sail around the islands and have these big festivals. So he was one of those. And um, when he came ashore and started uh, talking to the local people, they could see, you know, here was somebody like it's a revisit from the homeland. But equally, Cook and the others, um, the Georg Forster later on called Tupai a genius. And he was, he was, he was a, a fantastic linguist, so he could adapt to Māori. He was able to speak with Māori, but he, he did the chart of the Pacific. But he also had these exchanges with local tohunga. And Dāwhiora still, you know, Te Dāwhiora, that school of learning, people like Wayne Ngata, um, Hera Ngata, the whole, all of that community at Uawatolaga Bay today, they hold fast to the legacy of that, that Farewananga. Well, there's a view that Tupaya saw Cook as a means to his own ends, really, wasn't there? Not that he just went along for a ride. <laughs> yeah, the story of, you know, it was really interesting working in Tahiti for all that time because I got to know, you know, people, a lot of people there and, and explore a lot of the sources. And... What had happened in Tahiti, uh, well, in the Society Islands, just before um, Tupaya left, there'd been a, a war. So the warriors from Bora Bora came down, they attacked Ra'iatea, and they tried to capture the young Ariki from there, the high, and he was like red, wore the scarlet feather um, girdle and so on, tried to capture him. But Tupaya apparently was the guy that took him off the island and took him to Tahiti. And then he forged a relationship with Pūrea, who was a high priest, 
high chief finesse from there. And they tried to install um, her son as the high chief of the whole archipelago, and it didn't work. People got jealous and didn't work. And so there'd been a big battle just before the endeavor turned up. And so Tupaya saw an opportunity, you know, he's, he made friends with the scientists and the artists. He was an artist himself. And uh, from what Cook and the others say, he was looking to go to England to get, to get guns because he wanted to Sounds wipe out familiar. those guys from Porta Porta. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but like Hongi, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, so he had his own agenda, obviously. But I think he was curious as well. You know, he just wanted to go see. Well, so those early interactions showed that, um, that once, even when the language barrier was able to be bridged, the ideas of, of, of who was in charge of, of their own patch and, and who was going to have ascendancy um, never really matched up right from early on, did they? And if we sort of jump forward to, to the missionaries and um, uh, Kendall and, mm. and, and co, once we go to the Bay of Islands and the missionaries were coming, um, the Enlightenment idea is still there, isn't it? Um, and bringing civilization to what were by now called noble savages um, was, was, the idea was still to change uh, and, and impose on top you know, the, I guess, the European way of doing things. Um, but it never really happened, did it? Well, I, think there was, I think there was a shift from the late 18th, the 18th century, which is 1769 we're talking with Cook, uh, to 1814 when the missionaries turn up. I think there had been quite a big shift. So that early Enlightenment period, and especially in the scientific community, um, there were ideas floating around that were quite revolutionary. So that was the era of um, Tom Paine writing the book, The Rights of Man. It was um, the first attempts to write, talk about the rights of women, uh, the emancipation movement for slaves. Uh, there were ideas about the rights of indigenous people, and all those ideas were sort of fermenting around in that late, you know, mid to late 18th century in Europe, and especially in Britain. Um, but then, as you move towards into the 19th century, I think there was a kind of a shift back to a much more hierarchical view of the cosmos, you know, with and that old idea of the great chain of being with God at the top, you know, and then the divine monarchs sort of go from the God and then there's the archangels and angels and the cherubim and seraphim and then there's the divine monarch and then there's all the aristocrats and then you go down to the ranks of the commoners and then you go down to the, the as you say, the barbarians and then the savages and then the sentient animals and then you go right down until you reach rocks and insects right at the bottom. And everything at top, at the top of the chain rules everything further down. So it's men above women as well and children in this whole hierarchical model of the world. Whereas the Māori worldview is quite different. That's, Whereas yeah. um, flora, fauna, man were all, all one and the same in different levels. This is, this is the thing. So, so this is one of the things about the 1814 and the missionaries is that by then they'd shifted to this you know, it was, that had won the battle of, of ideas in a way. Um, this hierarchical world with Europeans well above Māori and especially Aborigine people, Aboriginals in Australia and so on, but also above the earth and above the... So the point is that in the great chain of being, everything at the bottom has to offer up tribute. And today you could say 
the 1% and the 99%, you know, corporate structures. At Varsity, we've got it too, you know, sort of this ranked idea of the world. And again, on talkback, you still hear people talking those ideas about savages and, you know, bringing up stuff about... Boo. Yeah, exactly. And so I think they're very resilient, those kind of models, but as you say, in the Māori view of the cosmos, and this oh, is one they're convenient, of aren't they? Models like that are convenient. Yeah, very, for some. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So with the missionaries trying to then the doctrine of the day and the gospel of the day did, and, and, and you see evidence that there was shifts and when you get to the time that Williams was, was, was around um, the Bay of Islands that they're starting to feel more confident that you know, they're making headway. But did they actually convert those people there or did Māori just co-opt the bits that suited the stories they already had? Yeah, well, the interesting case in point in that early period is, and I was exploring this because I thought it was a fantastic, so interesting, is Hungi Hika and Thomas Kendall and Samuel Marsden, those three. Because Thomas Kendall had been, you know, taught all the stuff about bringing the, the gospel to the benighted savages and, you know, the light of the world and all of these things. And he writes about it in, in his diaries and his letters. Um, and he had the sense of virtue in coming out. It was a, like a great um, service to humanity. And this was totally sincere. I mean, people utterly believed that in the 1814 uh, period that the gospel, taking the gospel was an unequivocally good thing to do. No doubt, really. And then what happened when he got here, and he, this is Thomas Kendall, he's interesting, he steeped himself in the language and as he steeped himself in Māori ways of thinking, he actually, he started to, and he forged a relationship with Te Rākau, who was the tuhunga Rangihaua, and, and then later on with uh, Te Rākau's daughter. Um, and this was the famous you know, affair, if you like, that he had that led to him being kicked out of the mission. But what had happened to him before that is that he got enchanted with Māori knowledge, and he was studying with this tuhunga, and he kept writing back to the Missionary Society in London trying to explain to them what a sublime, he called it sublime, you know, what a wonderful way of looking at the world this was. And of course they weren't very, they, you know, they thought instead of going and converting the so-called heathen, you know, he'd been converted. And they write to him all these letters about, you know, going native and that sort of thing. He went so that very, he was the very first missionary and, and he really basically yeah, he's, he and he was the first to then um, fall out with and lose faith in his colleagues, the other missions, wasn't he? Yeah, and he, he ended up going to London, as you know, with Hungi Hika. And um, Hungi, again, like Tupaya, had exactly the same sort of mission. Um, wanted curious, wanted to go and see what England was like, um, but also wanted guns and, and blacksmiths, and he wanted to set up a kind of settlement under his control. And the amazing thing is that, um, you know, by then Kendall was in the thick of this. So they went to translate the, the to write the first grammar of Māori. So the first place they went to was Cambridge. And there was Hongi Hika and his companion Waikato with Kendall in Cambridge, working with Professor Lee to write this grammar of Māori. So 
and they've got all these beautiful things, manuscripts that survived from that. And then he was taken, he met all, you know, all these archbishops and dukes and so on. Then he was taken to meet the king in Carlton House. And he greeted, the king greeted him as a king. He called him Mr. King Chungi. And then Waikato responded for Hungi, because Hungi would never speak English. He was a... He understood it though, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. I think he was a real patriot though. You know, he just, he wouldn't, he, he never really, he always thought his own way of living was far better. And so he greeted the king back through Waikato and he took his cloak off his shoulders and laid it before the king. And then the king took him later to his own private quarters um, where he had an armory and gave Hungi this chainmail and, um, and a helmet, which Hungi then wore in battle when he came home. Saved his life. Saved his life on many in occasions. Auckland. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Dangerous places, Auckland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that was also a turning point in, in Hongi's attitude towards the settlers who were already there, and particularly the, the missionaries, wasn't it? Because he realised that Marsden in particular um, hadn't exactly been truthful about how good his connections up the, up the tree were, and Hongi realised that the king didn't know who Marsden was. That's right. Well, yeah, exactly. So it, what, what you realise is that Marsden had been using the king as a kind of, you know, the king won't like this, um, for example, if you have more than one wife, uh, the king will not approve. Um, if you fight each other, the king will not be happy. Um, and made out, obviously, that he knew the king quite well. And of course, he, was a, he wasn't of that standing in, in his own society at all. Um, and when Huggy actually met the king, um, well, the first thing that happened in Cambridge was that he became, he stayed with um, one of the members of the aristocracy who'd fought in the Napoleonic Wars. So he learned a lot about European wars. And he realized that Europeans at that time were fighting the whole time. And he'd been told that he shouldn't fight, you know, because the king wouldn't like it. Well, he, he realized everybody over there was constantly fighting. And, and, and actually were really quite good at some of the, so he picked up tactics like the wedge-shaped formation and things like that, which um, Sir John had used apparently in, with his own Cambridge uh, volunteers. And then, um, then he realized as well that King George was in a lot of trouble because Queen Charlotte, he was trying to divorce Queen Charlotte at the time. So, so when they met, they had this hard case conversation where um, obviously Hungi commiserated with the king with the trouble he was having with his wife and said that he had, was having no trouble at all with his wives at home. So, so it's all right. <laughs> And as you say, you know, um, realizing that Marsden was just like, you know, in, his, in his categories, probably a bit of a tutua, yeah, there was nothing much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and in terms of the fighting that was happening here, at the same time it was ongoing and while it upset the, the missionaries, that comes back to one of the key cultural differences, doesn't it? When you talk about if something, uh, and the reciprocity thing, if, if someone is offended, something must happen to balance that offense. If someone attacks you, then there. But it was at all levels, wasn't it? Whether it was from needing a cooking, an iron cooking pot, to to balance up the offence, or whether it needed someone's head on a pike. Um, well, the this whole whole idea that, as you're saying, you know, this whole idea of utu and how does that actually work and the how and all that and. Um, 
it was interesting, I was talking with Charles Royal about this recently, and he, he sort of was talking very beautifully about um, if you give a gift, um, the hoe of the gift that goes with it, that's part of your own Beam. hoe, um, that, once that's in the hands of the receiver, then they are impelled, that, that part of the, your own hoe enters into them, and then they're compelled, really, to reciprocate at least, at least with as much generosity, hopefully with more. And then, but if you give an insult, same principle applies. So if you insult somebody, and this is an interesting thing that Cook actually said. I think he worked it, he worked it out sort of right, right early on. Uh, it was after the killings in Grass Cove, and he said, um, when he heard about it in Cape Town, he wrote in his journal, he said, um, they're brave, noble, open people devoid of treachery. This is of Māori. Um, but they will, changed. they will never forgive an insult if they have an opportunity to resent it, he said. Mm. That's still the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people still haven't worked that out, but Cook kind of you know, got the essence of it back in, what, it was 1772 or something. Because mm. it was Cook and, and Banks and even later Kendall, they all noted, didn't they, that um, the whole thing of uh, kaitangata, eating people, wasn't because there wasn't enough else to eat. It was, it was ritualistic and it was part of the, the, the reciprocity and keeping balance. If something had happened here, you had to have a, well, I liken it to Newton's law, every action has an equal but opposite reaction and that was the balance of the universe. That's it, yeah, exactly, that whole idea of equilibrium and sort of trying to get things to a point where you can sort of say, Kai, yeah, you know, it's been balanced. And um, the whole thing about kaitangata, um, again, just, that was interesting, because Marsden and people like that, they talked with local people about that, and they, Long, long conversations that were reported in the journals, and Marsden was trying to figure out how that system worked and what it was all about. And it's curious because, like Cookie, wasn't particularly judgmental of it. Um, many others were, but they weren't. And he, he basically got to understand, I think, both Cook and Marsden, said that this was really about um, achieving a balance. It was ritual, rit highly ritualistic. And it was when something had been upset in human relationships um, in a really negative way, then you had to rebalance it, otherwise your own home was damaged. It wasn't that you had a choice, it was because if that insult was allowed to lie, it would harm you and your children and your grandchildren if you were a rangatira, all of your people. But it made for good headlines in London. <laughs> yeah, yes. So will we come through from the missionaries from 1814 and getting towards the, the, the signing of the, the treaty and the skirmishes are still happening, uh, Williams has come, the first of you know, the king's own man um, comes, but really in terms of what the, the rangatira, the chiefs were doing, particularly in the north, and once they had muskets and were able to deal to everybody else with aplomb, um, nothing really changed, did it? their view of the world and their view of what was, even though there was trading and interaction and uh, even intermarriage and children left, right and centre, the actual belief system didn't change one bit, did it? Well, I think um, the interesting thing is that issues, say, around the treaty, um, 
I remember, Eri, because I participated in the, the hearings of the uh, treaty claim up north um, and was a, a witness up there. And Eri Mahenare said, he went back to the visit of Hongi to meet the king. And he said about that, he said, it was ariki kite, kite ariki, rangatira kite rangatira, rai kite rai. They met as equals, you know, high chief to high chief, uh, rangatira to rangatira, forehead to forehead. Basically, they, they met as equals. And he said, that was our expectation when we went into the treaty negotiations. You know, he was talking about, in Māori, obviously, but he was explaining that um, if you read the treaty in Māori, uh, with all that, those tuku that go backwards and forwards in the treaty text, ka tuku te queenio ingarangi, it's, 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 it's a gift exchange. And that people expected that if they gave certain things to the queen, then their hoe would go with that, you know, if they signed, put their moko on the treaty and things, that their hoe was part of that. And she would be impelled to reciprocate at least with the same generosity. And balance was maintained. Yeah, and so, and so this is what Irima was explaining to the tribunal. You know, that, has, that expectation's still there. And the whole thing about the treaty debates and the treaty settlements is about broken promises around that, that when the settlers finally got power, um, you know, those, they basically, that relationship of equality was, was smashed. And that's where we enter what I call the dodgy real estate period of our history. <laughs> With Māori maintaining um, their view of, um, of well, everything, really, nature, um, of being related, you know, I, I take the example of Ngāti Manawa from the Eastern Bay of Plenty, where they say, you know, they are descended from eels. They are ill people. Others say they're descended from this particular plant or this particular gecko or, mm. or, or what, what have you. Um, and the many gods and, and the creation story. Um, how can we learn from that today? Mm. How do, might that help us as a, as a peoples, as a nation? Because it's a metaphysical concept that most people I talk to about it, they go, I'm not descended from a rock. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, isn't it, that people will say, you know, they'll talk about trickle-down economics, for example, which is another case of the great chain of being, in a way. Um, and they will, they'll talk about these things as though that's the way the world is, not realising that a lot of those ideas are based on very old mythological constructs. And yet, as soon as you start talking about whakapapa and being, you know, descended from the first impulse of energy in the cosmos and then come the various ho and then come dangi and papa mm. and then come the children and everybody sort of the papa, including people are all linked in this great cosmic set of webs. Well, you know, if you think about contemporary science and you, I'm really interested in the, the environmental sciences and in contemporary biology and the, the ideas of complex systems and complex networks they're really very much like this concept. It's much, much closer. I mean, there's no scientific support that I know of for the, the great chain of being. But Whakapapa and these ideas of these living networks, which are, as you say, where there's exchange between human beings and things like rivers and mountains and so on, and territories, and there's, it fits in very well with cutting-edge contemporary science. 
And so I think instead of having ideas that clash and collide, you know, the, the great chain of being was always on a collision course with Māori philosophy because it's, you know, Māori are already a lower, lesser form of life, you know, under that philosophy, whereas, as we see, you know, the expectation was that they would be equal. Um, so in this kind of whakapapa view of the world, uh, it's a better way of living, you know, for me, it's to think about other people as, as worthy of respect. So the people of, you know, from Ruapehu, Tongarero, down to the sea down, the Whanganui River, Ati Honui, a Paparangi, Ati Hoa, Ati Rangi, those people they have always said, you know, I am the river and the river is me. They see them as, as um, there is no difference. They're all part of a bigger, a bigger circle of life, if you like, and that the river is not just the water that flows over the rocks and between the banks, but it is those rocks, it's the fish, the banks, the trees, the mountains at the top end, at the sea at the bottom. That is probably the best example we have, but there are others, aren't there? I think the Whanganui River is um, a fantastic example, and you and I were talking a bit earlier about relationships that you've had that have taken you into that, into that way of seeing the river. And um, I had the privilege of being taken down the river um, by Libby Hakarai and Tainui Stevens, um, meeting up and going and staying on Marae because my great-grandfather was a filmmaker-photographer on an expedition that was sort of dreamed up by Apirangata, but uh, Peter Buck was on it. And they met up with the local people and my great-grandfather filmed and photographed. So we went down the river taking back the films and photos, um, descendant to descendant, um, showing them in the houses at night. And it was fantastic, and we went out on the river too. So we were out there with Ned, um, with the, they call themselves the river rats, the river expert guys, on a replica waka, and paddled it down the river. And it was just, you know, talking to him um, and those, those people on the river, as you say, that whole idea of I'm the river and the river is me, when you're with them, you can feel it. It's, um, and if the river's dying, so am I. Well, they were the first um, iwi grouping, I understand, to go to court on environmental issues. They went to court over um, the introduction of trout and um, foreign species saying it would harm the river. And they lost in court and ultimately were proven right. And I think the next case they took was um, about deforestation, cutting the bush down, saying that you know, you'll upset the balance of the river and you'll harm the river, and they lost in court and again were proven right. Mm. Um, so you think there's a place for that sort of holistic thinking uh, in our modern day world? Well, I think actually it's urgent um, because, and it's not, it's not as though um, there are elements, as I say in contemporary science with complex networks and those ideas, and we talk to people about complexity theory, um, that's a, a major move in the environmental sciences, but not just the environmental sciences. Ideas of complementarity um, are there in quantum physics. You know, um, Some of these philosophical notions um, uh, run very deep in contemporary science. And if you can find ways of actually getting some of these, uh, if you like, these imaginings of how the world works to talk with each other creatively, then it's what's new that might emerge. And in that context, Te Awatupua Act, for example. I was just talking um, yesterday, actually, with uh, Jacinda, Jacinda Ruru, who's, who actually helped to draft that act, uh, which is, recognizes the Whanganui River as a legal being Personally. in its own right. 
And that world-leading legislation, it's the first river in the world to have that recognition, legally. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and as you say, those Whanganui people, they fought, you know, they've been fighting since about the 1870s or 80s, I think, some of their first court battles. 1869. Yeah, it goes way, way back. That first one, I'm, which is the one on the trout, when was that? You, that yeah. was the first one. Yeah, very, very early. So they've been fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting, and they haven't stopped. And now, finally, you know, as a result of their treaty settlement, out comes this act, which is, is world-leading. And you've got rivers in India now have followed um, that precedent. And I think around the world, people are looking at the Whanganui River Act, Tawatupua, and saying, wow, this is a, this is a much... This is a much more productive way and creative way of thinking of our relationships with places, uh, you know, beings like rivers and the ocean, perhaps. A lot of people, we're just about out of time. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand these concepts and they don't understand how a river can be a legal being. Um, how do you get them to the other side of the line, make them comfortable with concepts like that, make concepts like that um, viable part of how we go about our day-to-day -day lives? Um, I think the interesting thing about the, um, the Wanganui Act, um, again, had the privilege of being down there just, I think, just as the Act was being passed. And the local community, obviously, I mean, for some people, it's a surprising thought. But for many New Zealanders, a lot of Kiwis don't realise that some of these ways of thinking have actually rubbed off over the last couple of, you know, hundred years. We have co-inhabited these landscapes for quite a while now. And you do hear people talking about themselves as kaitiaki now, and not all of those people are Māori. There's quite a few people that are starting to think, rather than thinking of a river as something you can exploit and take gravel out of, and you know that it's just there to serve human beings, that the Māori way of thinking about it actually sort of fits better with both ecological science, but also with the way they feel about their own local river, you know, and, and so I think that there's a move, you know, the, the world keeps shifting and changing and it can change for the better, uh, you know, it doesn't all have to be Armageddon and apocalypse um, and in our relations with the natural, you know, with these other life living systems, um, I think there's real ways forward here and we could be world leading in this space and I think there are a lot of scientists both Māori and non-Māori. There are legal scholars like Jacinta, both Māori and non-Māori. And they're exploring this space in ways which I think are quite revolutionary and, and right at the cutting edge. How do you take it from the cutting edge to Queen Street to the main street of Danny Burke to yeah. um, two streets back from the main street in Gore? My husband's from Gore. <laughs> Easy then. I'm from Gisborne. <laughs> this is not a theoretical question. <laughs> well, I, I can think of, for example, um, uh, so we were talking about rivers, and it was Taina Moitara, who's from Gisborne, and me, and we were talking about our rivers in Havelock North at the Arts Festival. Um, there, and, and it was fantastic. The audience was kind of, yeah, it was 
just the, lots and lots of people from the local community, the main street, if you like. Um, and we, we were exploring some of these ideas. Taina was talking about the Tiarai River in Gisborne, which used to be a tanifa. You know, it was Tiarai Tūru. Um, and he was talking about the history of that, and he performed the karakia and so on. And then I was talking about stuff that we were doing around rivers. And the audience was fabulous. I mean, it wasn't, they weren't sitting there saying, what a load of, you know, as you would say in the main street of wherever. Um, you can all think of the phrases. <laughs> they were really, really thoughtful about it because they could see, um, for example, the main, the river that ran through Havelock North has been undergrounded. It runs under the, and there was a, a young group of young people um, who actually did a, a dramatic, dramatic performance about their river um, and what had happened to it. And, of course, in Havelock North, they, had, they understood um, I'm the river and the river is me. If the river's dying, so am I. I mean, they got sick, you know, from water. And so that was a very vivid, these are not poetic phrases. For those people, it was something they'd lived through of what happens if you don't look after water. If you talk to Ngāti Whātua Rākei, there's a tanifa who lives in the lava tubes just up the street here. Mm. Yeah. I yeah. forget his name, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, we've, we've skipped over a lot of things because we would talk for 49 days and three and a half <laughs> hours if we tried to uh, um, cover all of the, the aspects of the book because it's, it's got so much detail in it. One of the things that was also seen as, as quite world-leading was the treaty settlement process. I think people have a reasonable understanding of that now. Um, how does that fit in with these concepts that you talk about in, in the book at the point we're at now? Well, um, we were sort of talking ourselves a little before, um, before this, this session today. I've had this extraordinary experience of working with um, a team for a documentary on Māori TV, and we were exploring ideas about the future together in this documentary, which is screening at the moment. And when we're thinking about the future, we, we're kind of talking about ideas like, um, for example, in the environmental space, you know, the episode about that's called the cry of the huia. You know, how do we, how do we stop that process of just destroying our life support systems, you know, what are the alternatives? Are there better ways of thinking that would give us a relationship with the birds and the, the, the ocean and the fish, as you say, and the eels, which meant that human beings have a good life, but so do these other life forms, and that we are sharing our beautiful islands together in a way that's great for every, you know, for all the living systems here, because if we destroy them, we destroy ourselves. I mean, I'm the river, and the, if the river's dying, so am I. It's true. You know, we pollute and destroy our sources of water underground in the rivers. We destroy our economy, basically. Um, and we destroy our families, and we destroy our communities. And we do terrible things to human health in the process. So, so the alternatives that we're looking at are ones where not so much, it's not an atavistic thing of going back to old habits of mind, but it's trying to see what happens if you take these different philosophical strands and the people who hold fast to them and get them into creative conversations and then see what happens. Okay, one to finish on then. How do non-Māori fit into that? How do non-Māori fit into that? Well, 
That's a really good question. I mean, I think that... Um, You know, do if you, they have if anything you can, to be if you go back to of, the beginning, hmm? do they have anything to be afraid of? Well, I don't think so. I've never really understood that. Um, you know, that people think because I'm a Pākehā that moves around in Te Ao Māori a lot and have a lot of relationships, and I'm in lots of places where many people think they're angst-ridden spaces, and you know, I'm probably getting beaten up every five seconds. But actually, it's been a joyful, it's been a joyful set of experiences. I mean, you have the odd time when you get a bit of a belt, but that's good because that keeps you grounded um, and it happens anyway in life. Uh, but on the whole, and nearly always, it's been absolutely fantastic and how lucky are we to have to be a society in a country where we have these gorgeous islands and then we have this trajectory, this kind of whole strand of human history that comes, you know, in Waka across the Pacific and lands up here first. And then we've got this other strand that came out of Europe originally and now is coming from kind of everywhere in the world, meeting up in this place. And basically it feels like the sky's the limit. You know, that we have, we're generous about difference. We see it as a strength, not a weakness. And we learn to appreciate, you know, things like these philosophical elements in Te Ao Māori, which are in my mind really beautiful and very, you know, they, they echo and resonate, as I say, with a lot of cutting-edge science, for example, and a lot of, you know, very new forms of thought about environmental issues. Uh, we could be right at the edge, you know, and we've done it before. Uh, there was the promise of that in the treaty. It wasn't realised at the time. Um, but 250 years, you know, after the first arrival of Europeans next year, yeah, there's nothing to stop us basically saying, okay, we've, a lot of things have gone wrong and we, we betrayed some of those early, earlier, earlier promises but also the promise that was captured in them. But there's nothing to stop us actually picking up those opportunities again and saying, you know, let's keep talking, let's be creative, um, let's draw on all of our legacies and see what we can do here that will lead the world. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. So that was the briefest of praises of all of the information that if you haven't read it already, that you will find in, this, in this, this wonderful book. I hope it's whet your appetite. There were things I certainly learned in there and, and um, challenged some of my own preconceptions and probably some areas of knowledge in my, my own whanau. So um, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. There's lots to be learned from it. I hope you all buy it and support New Zealand books um, and read it. Um, that's, we won't have time for any questions because I talk too much. Um, but you will be able to have a chance to um, talk to Dayman and she can sign some books uh, in the foyer afterwards. So thank you all for coming. Namahiki uh, Akoto, Kati. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.